0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Peace Building Podcast from Conflict to Common Ground. Our next guest is, uh, I'm super excited about finding her because I've been looking for a while for somebody who could talk credibly about uh, money. And of course, this podcast isn't really about that. It's about focusing on processes and ideas that build common ground and complex systems. But I have always said and always believed that one of the things you need to look at is or you just need to follow the money. So i had been looking for a while. I found uh, uh, an interesting NBC reporter that had quit because the mainstream media in the United States was so um, in the pocket, I suppose he was saying, of what we might call the military industrial complex. But then I found Stephanie Savell and the Cost of War Project. There are three women that have been doing an amazing job documenting what has actually been being spent by the United States and to some extent other countries on what they call the post 9-11 wars. And um, so I'm gonna keep this short because I'm on my way as we speak to the Central African Republic where I'm gonna be working with the United Nations peacekeeping mission there. I'm super excited about that, specifically excited about working with um, women peacekeepers there. I'm sure I will tell you more about that. But um, please go uh, to Stephanie's and the Costs of Wars website. It's amazing what they've been doing. And um, I will just say uh, briefly that Stephanie Savelle is an anthropologist of militarism, security, and political culture, and has studied these topics in the United States and in Brazil. Uh, She co-directs the Brown University Costs of War Project. I um, asked her to speak versus, uh, as she was one of the younger members, and I actually thought it was appropriate that one of the younger members of the Cost of War Project speak because, as it turns out, it sounds like we are really mortgaging our children's futures, in the United States anyway, with the amount that is being spent on the military. So I'm going to let Stephanie talk about that. She's uh, really uh, done a lot of research talks very credibly and really clearly about exactly what's going on. So before I get to Stephanie, I just wanna say that we have moved the podcast from SoundCloud to Podbean, and uh, I think a much stronger application for podcasts. And now you should be able to find this podcast in any place you like to get your podcast. So we're super excited about that. So without further ado, I bring you Stephanie Savelle. So, greetings, Stephanie. I am so honored to have you. Uh, I think I told you that, you know, the niche of this podcast is not exactly focusing on specifics, on data. It's really about process interventions that build common ground, but I also am Gestalt trained and you know, what that means in our language is we do a lot of figure ground analysis of complex systems and whether they be be small organizational systems or large organizational systems or the planet. And, uh, it's, it's a really simple analysis. It's just, you know, forest and trees, you know, like if you're looking at a forest, what's standing out, you know, is there a tree that's standing out in the forest? And when I think about the planet, uh, and I think about peace building, it's very hard to ignore two big themes as far as I'm concerned. One of them is military spending, mm-hmm. which is enormous, but I'm going to let you talk about that. And the other phenomenon right now is, I think, what's happening with women globally. And the phenomenon, and I and I talked about this on the episode I did with Barbara Stani, who's a who's an expert on women, money, and power, but the phenomenon of codependency that still, I think, plagues us women all over the planet, um, but the movement that's happening of many of us waking up and um, deciding that it's time to like really step into our leadership and stop asking for permission and really look internally to our own sovereignty and our, also our conversations with each other. I find women talking to each other in ways that, it's just unprecedented for me. It's really interesting. And I have a global practice, so it just seems like this is happening everywhere. So so I was really excited to come across you in the Cost of War Project because I had, you know, I wanted somebody to talk about the level of military spending. And I'd found a, a really interesting NBC reporter that quit because he was tired of what's going on with the mainstream media. But then I came across you and because you are the Cause of Women Project, I believe, was founded by women, and you obviously are a woman. I thought, ah, oh, yes, she's, she's my person.
1: <laughs> that's great. <laughs> my
0: person. And um, so welcome, and I'm so glad to have you. And I do want to just say also, you know, I work from an assumption that, or I think I said to you, that one of the things that's interesting that I think is not widely known, and I talked about this, you know, Barbara Staney confirmed, her name is Barbara Houston now, but... It's been confirmed by many people that in the 21st century, 70% of the wealth in the United States is being transferred to women. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we are exactly uh, really in charge of it, but it's in our names. So I just think the whole thing about money and following the money is really important. And so I asked you, um, as you know, I asked you to speak to younger people, women particularly, Women in the global north, because I'm also super aware. I have just recently tried to interview two amazing young women, uh, one from Pakistan and one from South Sudan. Both of who are really interested. They'd be an amazing interview in terms of what they're doing in their countries, Mm. but they're both too scared to talk to me because they're at the moment they're afraid they might get killed. And um, you know, so I I think that as women in the global north and in the United States are waking up, I guess I'm really wanting us to really pay attention on what what power we have because we have significant power and uh, as do younger men too and i uh, i'm interested in in not power over men i'm i'm interested in power with men but Mm -hmm. i am interested in waking up women and really having a conversation among women so you don't have to do that but i just wanted to preface it with that and um ask you know say welcome um
1: yeah, I'm so thrilled to be here, and it's really, really fun for me to have a, this kind of a conversation that, you know, this isn't the, the kind of a typical venue for talking about our costs of war work, right? So this, to me, is kind of crossing boundaries in a way, and, and that's really exciting to talk to people who who I wouldn't normally get to talk to.
0: Well, maybe start by just a little bit of a background. I don't want to ask you things that I know you've You have a, some great interviews out there and media out there, but just... And your thing on your website about the cost of war is so moving. So I really encourage listeners to go there and look at that. But maybe just give me headlines about the cost of war project and how it began and who's there and, you know, just a little bit about about you.
1: Yeah, so you're right that it was founded by women, two women, uh, Catherine Lutz, who's a professor at Brown University, and Nita Crawford, who's now a professor at Boston University. Um, And they founded the project, the Costs of War Project in 2011, and it was the 10th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan after 9-11 in response to the terror attacks of 9-11. And what they saw was that there really was very, very little conversation in the United United States about the many costs and consequences of these post-9-11 wars. So, um, obviously huge financial costs, and we'll talk about that. And, and uh, you're totally right to kind of follow the money because this is, you know, in my mind, this is kind of the biggest story that no one talks about in the United States today. And maybe uh, in, in the world, maybe. Perhaps, mm-hmm. yeah. But then there's also, uh, you know, you can look at costs in a whole different set of senses as well, right? There are economic, but there are also social and political costs to having been at war for, um, 17, 18 years now. Mm-hmm. So those include things like um, the, the political consequences of us the, the US military kind of going into what are now 80 countries around the world on you know counter terror missions and the blowback that comes from that is huge. Um, there are social costs, for example. Um, you can't even quantify the ways that all the military veterans in the United States have to get cared for by Their families and their communities. And a lot of times the burden of care falls on women Um, and those kinds of costs, you can't put a a dollar figure on that. But that is a huge, huge and often horrific consequence of the United States decision to have been at war all these years.
0: And not to mention, I mean, one of the things that I've been really interested in is uh, multi-family, no, multi-generational trauma. It's been an interesting conversation going on in the world these days. But you know it's not just in this generation you you start traumatizing people and then it ripples for totally. generations and generations um, yeah
1: there's some interesting research about um the children of military vets who are coming back from the war zones now and and the trauma that they're facing and it's really awful and you know um the connection to women is partially that you know that the original mothers day was um It was in the 1800s and it was all about women kind of advocating for peace because their sons and their husbands were the ones who were at war and and they were really, so I think this really is tied in very centrally to your issues because, um, because I think women do have a really, like historically we've had a really important role to play in the peace movement in this country.
0: So um, the Four Project was founded by uh, two women at Brown, and you are the co-director at the moment.
1: Yeah, so I was brought on a few years ago. Um, I'm the now the third co-director. So the three of us uh, run the project. Um, the two, Catherine Lutz and, and Nita Crawford, are still very involved, and they they brought me on board as someone who could really kind of bring, I had a, you know, some nonprofit experience and, and I was really, you know, I had done my, um, I have a PhD in anthropology. I had done my research on um, issues of militarization in Brazil, actually. Hmm. And then, so I came into this project with a, you know, with an interest in the topic, but, uh, you know, a kind of a set of experience outside the world of academia. And one thing that I that I'm able to bring to the project is that kind of the the bridging role to me is really important. There's so many insights that are going on within uh, the Academy, but a lot of times in the U S that is siloed and, and incentive structures are such that, you know, a lot of times academics are talking to other academics and this costs of war project is really about bringing these insights and this research to the broader public and using the research to kind of promote debate and, and questioning around, you know, what are we doing at war, really, anyway? And and why are we at war? And are we meeting our objectives? Are we reducing violence against civilians in the United States and abroad? Um, arguably, we think the answer is no. Um, and I can talk more about that. But
0: The other thing uh, that's interesting, I understand, is that I think your is it a center or whatever, the project is really pretty unique that a lot of um, Academic programs these days tend to focus on peace and security, which the languaging is interesting. The language of peace and security versus peace studies, and the language of terrorism also is is language that is interesting language. but i I want to stop there because you've you've framed all the questions we need to ask. But I wanted to start with uh, a personal question to you um, because I think it's always interesting to listeners about, what planted seeds in you to do this kind of work? Why are you passionate about it? Uh, if you could give us just some of your story. It's always interesting.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I actually started off a, a, a recent piece I wrote talking about my experience. You know, I'm, I'm in my late 30s now. And I was, you know, I go to kind of a, let's say, a cocktail party. And I have my kids, you know, I have two young kids. And, and people say, oh, what do you do for work? And I say, oh, I work on this research project about the war on terror, the U.S. war on terror and and its costs and consequences for Americans and for other people in the world. Um, And people just kind of say, oh, uh uh-huh, you know, they- they, (laughs) Silence. Right.
0: Crickets, they don't know what to say. (laughs) Yeah,
1: exactly, because this, you know, and I think that's really telling, actually, my experience in, in, in sharing what I do. I think that at, you know, the American public, we are really disconnected. From the war on terror, we don't think about it very often. Um, and I was, I was similar to that for a long time. Like I remember, you know, back in the day, I was in college when when we began these wars, and I went to a couple protests. I remember, I you know, I, I'm half French, so I was really upset when people would say um, would call them freedom fries instead of French fries. I don't know if you remember that they were I protesting the protesting the French protest of the U.S. going to war over this. Um, but then beyond that, I, I you know, I just kind of dropped it. Like, I think many of us did, right? And, and over the years, my research kind of led to an interest in militarism. I was in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil in the favelas, and I was looking at the military going in and policing these uh, low-income neighborhoods. And the reason that I did was because it was just this really important thing that people were concerned about on the ground, you know, as kind of, a, as an anthropologist, you Brazilian, kind of- have, Brazilians. Brazilians, yeah, yeah. You have your ear to the ground and you're trying to figure out, you know, what do people really care about? What's the, like, the political issue that kind of most impacts them and concerns them and, and fires them up and around which cultural life is, is organized, right? And for them, it was by far policing in this issue of police militarization because, um, often there, it's a war on drugs. Mm-hmm. And so as I, I was working with Catherine Lutz, she was my, my dissertation advisor, and she really got me tuned into the, the ways that this issue of militarization kind of permeates a lot of different aspects of life in the United States. And so it was pretty easy for me to make that transition from looking at you know this issue in Brazil, where I came to it because people were so passionate about it, are interested, uh, and then, you know, in the U.S., it's not something that people talk about in in the sense of the U.S. being at war. Um, certainly, I think the issue of police militarization is more and more present in public discourse in the U.S. these days. Um, but but it's all kind of part and parcel of the same the same issue in my mind, which is the ways in which you know our lives are often dictated by a militarization and a U.S. imperialism that most of us um, just aren't aware of. Uh, excellent. So, um,
0: let me ask you to really speak to your generation and those coming up behind you. Um, why should people be concerned about this? What's the impact? I, mean, I don't know the order of this. Maybe, maybe I should back up and say, if you look at the, you know, the big picture of what's happening here, could you first paint a big picture of what's happening in terms of military spending, you know, what's happening with the United States, what's happening with other countries. Just give us, like, if you were up in the stratosphere looking down on this planet, what would you see around this?
1: Right. Um, So first of all, the U.S. spends more on its military than the next seven countries combined. So in 2018, we spent about $700 billion. That was the Pentagon budget. Um, that doesn't include actually the, uh, what are called overseas contingency operations. That's the war fund for the war on terror. Um, and, but so the 700 billion is just kind of the base Pentagon budget. And the next highest spender is China, which spent $250 billion on its military. And then Saudi Arabia, India, France, but the next seven countries after us um, are still spending a total that's less than our single $700 uh, billion dollar figure. So we really are, the U.S. is just spending massive amounts of money on the military. Um, the war on terror, we've calculated. Uh, yeah, go ahead.
0: Uh, you know, again, I, I always flinch a little bit with that language, to be honest. And I. Yeah, right. Um, and so I wanted you to talk about that uh, because I think it originated with George W. Bush. Yeah,
1: George W. Bush. Yeah, he called it the war on terror. It's It's a really the phrase itself is not something that that I like um, because it kind of legitimizes the sense that this is a just war and that okay, we're okay. seeking out, you know, these evil enemy terrorists and waging a just war on them. Um, we often like to call it the post 9-11 wars, yeah. but that has so much less kind of cultural recognition and resonance that, you know, right. I often will say the war on terrorism because I it's for ease of reference right so it's it's a very fine line and you're you're right to identify the ways that that phrasing is problematic
0: well and you know as a facilitator as a mediator i'm always about taking perspective and when i look when i look at the planet obviously these are you know i'm looking with wide eyes at the whole system i mean many people around the world would look at the united states as and call them terror you know right. call us terrorists uh, because of the extent of our militarization and what we are promoting around the world. And I'm agnostic on that because oh, I don't want to take a stand on that. But I do I do just want to say that the languaging is always, for exactly the reasons you said, right. uh, always kind of bugs me <laughs> because yeah, it feels and, like it justifies it.
1: Well, and also, I mean, not to mention that the, the other issue is that all the research shows that when you treat terrorism as a problem that to which there is a military solution, right? A war solution. Um, That is not an effective way of dealing with that issue, right? So there are more terrorist groups, extremist groups in the world than there were before the post 9-11 wars began. There are uh, more recruits to those groups in an ongoing basis. Um, And there are all these ways in which a military solution kind of lends itself to a broad range of abuses. So um, one of the interesting things that I've discovered, interesting and horrifying, is that, you know, the U.S. says that it's training all these different countries' security forces and governments in counterterrorism. That's much of what we're doing in these 80 countries, I mentioned, in which we're, um, you know, doing counterterror missions. And a lot of times, we are, you know, training these kind of autocratic governments that are using our trainings, the military trainings, to crack down on political dissidents, kind of newly renamed as terrorists, right? They're able to look at their political opponents and call them terrorists and use this training that we're offering. And and that's, you know, that's the kind of the latest framework for repression. And so those are just some of the ways in which um, the research shows that there's different ways of dealing with terrorism. You can um, you know, there's policing, which has its own set of problems, but then really it's about kind of getting to the root of the grievances that lead people to kind of be recruited to terrorist groups in the first place, right? And, and the ways in which, um, you know, a more just global economic system would alleviate a lot of the angst and anger uh, that leads people to also be angry, you know,
0: yeah, I mean, you know, as somebody who's been in the field of conflict resolution for uh, getting on whatever thirty years or whatever it's been,
1: you know, conflict
0: gets created by frustrated needs, and when you start meeting needs, a lot of it will dissipate. Mm-hmm. In my view, my simple view of it, but it is not that com- it, It's complicated, but it's not that complicated. Right. And uh, you know, one of the women that I just talked about that comes to mind, and she was talked about um, by Dr. Silla Elworthy in a earlier interview on the podcast. Uh, Her name is um, Gululai. I think her last name is Ismail. She's, she's Pakistani, but she is in jail at the moment. And, and, but really some of the work that she's been doing has been just exactly what the United States, you would think that civilians in the United States would want people to do. She's going into madrasas. She's, you know, convincing people that the Quran does not, you know, uh, condone or even support terrorism, and helping people find different ways. And I mean, it's a complicated story, and I don't know the details right now. But but it's like people like that that end up getting shut down and shut up. And sometimes I think, wow. Another image that comes to mind is um, I run an Airbnb out of my house, and uh, I, West Point is across the river from where I live. And West Point is the United States Military Academy, uh, the home of the U.S. Army. And I had um, a, I always forget military rank, but anyway, I had a guest staying with me. He'd been, he'd done two tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. And he, you know, he was on the front page of time for the work that he did in Afghanistan because he, he actually really wanted to use his uh, battalion to, to do much, what I would call much more preventative work. And he had the hardest time getting not only his troops that he says, you know, they just came in to feel like they were supposed to blow things up, but the brass to support him. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think when I went into Kabul, I was in Kabul a while ago working with um, senior women in the government. And I just remember flying in and just seeing so many Apache helicopters everywhere. Like, I, it was just like, hello, wow. Why do we need that? And he said, in his view, there is so much more military hardware out there than is ever needed for us to achieve our objectives now. Uh, yeah. You know? So it makes me wonder and makes me ask you again, and you're talking about this, but what's going on here? Who is benefiting? Because I think as a civilian who doesn't, who's not an expert about this, I also look at all the school shootings, the amount of guns in this country and, and the amount of small arms in South Sudan. I remember people there talking to me about it the selling of weaponry makes yeah. a lot of people oh, it's
1: uh, rich. Exactly. I mean, you put your finger on it. So there's this myth in the United States that we have to support, we have to give money to the military because it's, it's for the troops. Right. But that is actually the furthest thing from the truth. So of the about $700 billion a year that I mentioned, that's the budget for the department of defense. Um, over half of that, over three hundred billion dollars a year, goes to private security contracting companies, and the top five companies make the the CEOs of these companies make hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So I'm talking about you know Lockheed Martin and Boeing and Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics. So they're if you think about the CEOs making hundreds of millions of dollars a year, think about all the people working in those companies, right? And and that really, the system really is set up such that those companies are the ones benefiting right now from all this money.
0: Yeah. Uh, Dr. Zilla Elworthy, who wrote a book called The Business Plan for Peace, um, which is a great book. I, I recommend people listening to the interview earlier on, but She said, yes, it's very easy to figure out who the military contractors are, and it's very easy to start putting pressure on them, but it's not really happening, you know? um, Hmm. Maybe not easy to put pressure on them, but there's a lot of other things they could do with all their expertise, I would imagine, but they might not make quite as much money from it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: You know, people call it the military-industrial complex, um, and it's very, very entrenched in, in this country for many, many years now. And, you know, it really is, it's a big, big beast to tackle. But there are lots of groups who are who are attempting to do so.
0: So I want you to, I'm going to go back to my earlier question of speaking to your generation and those coming up uh, behind you. Yeah. Uh, and women particularly, and men as well. But why should this really light a fire under people?
1: Well, you know, one of the, the major issues here is that these wars have basically been paid for on a credit card. So most of the money that has gone to these wars has been paid through by, paid for by borrowing, and we draw on research that has calculated that in the next, um, by 20, 2060 or so, uh, in the next 40 years, we will owe over $8 trillion in interest alone on the money that, that we've borrowed. To pay for these wars, so and,
0: and who is loaning? Who's loaning the government this money?
1: Um, you know, part of it is there's some kind of um, money that's coming from abroad, but much of it really is uh, wealthy individuals. Um, you know, in the past, uh, the government would kind of you know issue war bonds and and get the population to kind of contribute money to the war effort through selling bonds, and and you know. Making sure that that even the people without a lot of money, a lot of resources, could kind of pitch in, basically. And now that's just not the case at all. So much of this is coming from corporations and individuals. Oh, oh, okay. First, you
0: said individuals, and it's like, wow. I did say individuals. Yeah, yeah. So, um, who are they, and
1: why are they doing this? I don't know enough about that. You know, we've we have research on this, but it's pretty opaque. Actually, the mechanisms that this borrowing is happening through.
0: Because I certainly know as somebody who's trying to get rid of some of my credit card debt. <laughs> I mean, I understand the interests of lenders to, you know, like to get you to buy credit. I uh, so I get that just as a money making point of view. But and maybe that's just it. They just see, you know, this is a huge amount of money. To, yeah. Yeah. You
1: know. Right. Right. It's a lucrative loan because um, you know, the US government is known as a good credit.
0: reliable they're gonna pay they're gonna get their money back. They're gonna yeah, get their money back. Exactly. Yeah. So so
1: thinking about
0: um younger people, um, this means, what will this mean for them?
1: Well, if you think about that $8 trillion amount in interest alone, so that's not all the other money that we're spending on veterans, on the the budget for the Pentagon itself, right? Mm-hmm. You just think about the, the ways in which that amount of debt is going to affect our children and their children, you know, it's, it's kind of like this is going to create ripple effects for generations to come. Um, certainly, in my mind, will affect the, the standing of, you know, the United States and the world, for sure, and, and our quality of life.
0: So could you slow down on both of those points? The, the first, the point about uh, that it will affect our children and grandchildren. How will it affect them? What will be the reality for their lives?
1: You know what I do know. It's it's hard for me to because I'm not an I'm an anthropologist. So what I can tell you is that um, the ways that money gets allocated in this country, um, Congress has um, basically a pot of money, and much of that money goes to a uh, like obligated spending, like Social Security and and Medicare and things like that. Um, So then there's a pot of discretionary spending. Mm -hmm. And what's happening is if you think about it as like a pie chart, like a round uh, circle, right? Um, The share that's going to the military is kind of taking an increasing amount of that circle Mm -hmm. and that the percentage, so basically of discretionary spending right now something like it's over 50%, maybe close to 60 I think it's 57 cents on the dollar, I believe. And, of- and then if you take into account other programs like costs that are related to the war that aren't necessarily included in the military budget, right. for example, care for vets, mm-hmm. um, then it's an ever greater percentage of that discretion. I, care for vets is the wrong example because that is probably included in um, obligated costs. Uh, but in any case, there are all these other associated expenses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that basically squeezes out what's left for everything else everything mm-hmm. from education to healthcare to housing. So this is the single issue that basically connects to anyone organizing about any topic. Any other topic in the United States is directly affected by the amount of money that goes to the military and the amount of, and relatedly, the amount of debt that we have for this war budget.
0: Yeah, that essentially uh, choices have already been made about how money's going to get spent before In people are,
1: before people are even
0: born. Exactly. And then you know, I think the theme here again, looking at it from a conflict resolution and from a negotiation perspective. I mean, I I teach people collaborative negotiation skills. Uh, I facilitate groups. I focus on mediation. It's always about focusing on interests, uh, interests and needs. And what's going on here is um, a way of frustrating needs and interests uh, for future generations and also, I guess, around the world, because we are taking approaches that are military approaches versus, uh, you know, as the guy that was staying with me, that the soldier that was staying with me, pointing out that actually that they were trying to set up a school that actually was supporting kids in really getting a better education. That is a basic need, but that's not necessarily where we're putting our attention. And,
1: yeah. And, and more and more U.S. foreign policy is getting uh, skewed so that diplomacy and aid is getting drawn down in favor of, you know, military relations and, and military solutions.
0: So this is a problem, I guess, and this is probably something I don't know, as an anthropologist, you might or might not feel like you could speak to, but it, it's a problem of attention and focus. And I think that, um, you know, there I've seen research about the millennial generation that they, by definition, they are, even though they're better educated, they're poorer than us baby boomers. And uh, for those of you who are from other parts of the world, you know, I think we're talking millennials. Oh, I guess millennials has become sort of a global idea, but uh, people in their 20s, early 30s. I don't know. You probably, what do you call yourself? Are you consider yourself? Uh, I'm kind
1: of right on the edge. I was right. born in 1981. So I, I'm right, the, the, the cutoff. So I'm technically a millennial, but yeah. <laughs> I don't really associate that. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're,
0: the Cost of War Project is actually trying to do just that. It's trying to put attention, sunlight on this issue. And in terms of what do you see as who's paying attention? How have you increased their desire to pay attention How could you imagine increasing the desire of, of young women, young men to really see how critical
1: this is? Yeah, such a good question because one of the things that has been pretty dismaying for me has Mm -hmm. been to, you know, if you go to a peace conference, for example, a lot of, you know, a lot of the momentum, the kind of organizing momentum around this issue is from, um, an older generation who are kind of calling on their years, you know, since Vietnam of experience of struggling for peace and pushing for peace and, you know, mobilizing against uh, nuclear weapons. Um, and so you see that that this issue, it really, it's, it's hard for it to resonate among the millennial generation and younger, um, even though there are polls that show that young people today are really concerned about the U.S. as empire in the world and, and the ways in which that kind of imperialism needs to be checked. Um, so I think it, it's a population that's ready to, it's kind of primed to care about this issue, but that right now there's just so much cultural detachment in the United States around um, just A, the fact that we're at war, and B, I think a lot of times there's a big disconnect. So first of all, we're not getting, because these wars are being paid for through borrowing, it doesn't affect most of us on a day-to-day basis. If we had to pay by war bonds and things like that, and if, if there were increased taxation, as there has been in many cases in past wars in the United States, um, then you feel the pinch, right? And, and there are arguments out there that say, you know that in and of itself would, would be enough to kind of get people um, to really care more about this issue. Um, But also I think there are uh, geographic differences in the United States such that there are, I think the majority of troops come like, and I'm not talking ranking officers, I'm talking kind of the regular enlisted troops come from, you know, a handful of some of the poorest states in the United States, and certainly not from the kind of elite East and West Coasts, where a lot of times uh, that are you know generating that kind of the hubs of colleges and universities and and future policymakers, right? Mm-hmm. So, so there really is a lot of a sense in which the the kind of socioeconomic differences in this country are playing into a lack of cultural attention to this as well.
0: Yeah. So we um, we're coming to the end of our time, and I wondered if you could. Uh, because I do think one of the things that I notice is that how foggy everybody gets about this. You know, what if somebody wrote a book called the, the article, The Fog of War, or there's that, that, I think it is so big, it's a little bit like climate change in that it's so big that people can't quite get it. Although some some congressmen, some some representatives in the United States government seem to be uh, paying more attention. And Definitely. But um, if you could try and summarize what you think the main ideas are that your generation and everybody, but I'm, I'm really wanting to bring attention to younger people, need to be paying attention to. I, I wonder if you could do that at this point.
1: Well, um, I think that obviously, like there is, as you're saying, momentum around discussions of climate change and climate change and militarism are very much tied together. So we actually have new research that's about to come out uh, next week on um, the fossil fuel emissions of the US military. And the, the it basically we've measured the amount of greenhouse gases that the military has emitted. And so they're kind of exempt from um, international protocols. Um, but the military is this huge contributor to climate change. Um, So, you know, for young people who, as I said, for young people who care about basically any issue um, from climate change to education, right, to issues of, you know, access to college and and all these different things, um, militarism is tied in through the money. Um, And, you know, remarkably, I think, it's the status quo in this country not to question how much money is going to the military and why and for what purposes. Um, the kind of politicians that we've spoken with about our research, um, most of them, you know, as much as they want, they speak of change, they speak about change very uh, in very incremental ways, like, you know, closing a few base, military bases abroad here and there. and. And, you know, slightly less money for the Pentagon budget and that kind of thing. Um, there are forces on both kind of way left and way right who are the ones who are who are willing to kind of take on this issue head on and say, you know, um, let's really question about whether we're, you know, the, the money that we're spending on the military. So, So I would just say, you know, I think we do need a generation of young people who kind of Care enough to actually do something about this and who you know in order to care enough They need to know enough which is where the cost of war project and
0: are. and what can they do? I mean it's in each individual life It's probably there's not one thing to do. There are probably many things to do, but what, what well, do you, you, know?
1: you know Congress has not debated this issue um, fully as a whole since 2001 when um, there was something called the authorization for the use of military force. It was the AUMF. And they basically passed, it was a blank check for the president to um, wage war in the name of this fight against terrorism. And that has, that AUMF has been used all those years in that time to expand the war to these different places, you know, Syria and and all these other countries where the U.S. is engaged in direct action on the ground. Um, And I think we need to push our lawmakers to, first of all, take back the congressional right and responsibility to declare war and to take that back from the president. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so repeal the AUMF. There's momentum around that in Congress right now. There's a, a, a and just say a, again, what does AUMF stand for? Just say it one more time. The authorization for the use of military force okay. was passed in 2001. And so, um, Representative Barbara Lee, actually, of California, is um, she's been an important player in pushing for the repeal of that AUMF. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are other, especially uh, some of these new representatives in the House, really kind of building momentum around this issue of um, what many people call the forever war, the endless war. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, we need to just kind of at the very granular level, just keep pushing our lawmakers to debate these issues and not just the small things, but the big things. Why are we waging this war? What are we accomplishing? Are we meeting our objectives? Are less people dying, you know, And, and if not, then What are some different, what's a better grand plan for dealing with the issue of terrorism and and other threats to the United States?
0: So here's, as we end, a personal question for you again is, you know, you're obviously going against the grain. I go against the grain, you know. um, How do you find your own inner authority about this? Because it's, you know, you get crickets at cocktail parties, you, uh, you know, how do you find your own inner authority and inner guidance
1: around you know I'm someone who I I really get fired up about bringing as I said bringing research to the public and I feel like when I get questioned or um, you know I was on C-SPAN being interviewed the other day and I got some people kind of saying who are you to talk you know and, and what I fall back on is you know there is all this Research into you know what we're doing and its effects and its basically ineffectiveness at fighting terrorism um, or, or addressing this problem, right? So making um, people safe. Making people safe, exactly. And mm-hmm. so, to me, that that's always something that I fall back on.
0: And and sorry, making people safe and building good relationships with people all over the world
1: A- around the world, yeah. exactly. Um, so yeah, the research is like it's kind of like. You know, I know that I'm speaking from a place where I'm backed up in solid evidence, yeah. you know, right. and and that really helps in yeah. kinds of situations.
0: Well, you're amazing, Stephanie. I mean, really amazing and just so grateful to you for the work that you're doing, because it, uh, you know, like I said, with my gestalt lens, it's a huge tree sticking up out of the forest that no one seems to really be talking about, at least in this country. I think other countries, maybe people pay more attention because they're experiencing it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, kudos to you and uh, the Cost of War Project. And thank you very much for your time.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for your attention to this issue.
0: So thanks for listening very much. And I just want to make another announcement again that we've moved from SoundCloud to Podbean, but you should be able to find now the podcast in any of the places that you go for your podcasts, including Spotify. Uh, I also wanted to let you know that we do want somebody, uh, we're looking for a volunteer to do the show notes. It's a fun job if you'd like to pay more detailed attention to what's being said here. I think you'll enjoy that. And uh, please come back and listen again to us at the Peacebuilding Podcast.